0: There was a paradigm for many, many, many years that profitability and responsible conduct or sustainability are two opposites and mutually exclusive. What we see is actually quite the opposite now.
1: Welcome to a brand new episode of our podcast, Human and AI Mind Machines in the Great Ascent.:
2: Thanks that you tuned in again to listen and to geek out with us over the fascinating field of AI and the role of human. We are Uli and Avery, your hosts for this episode, and we are stoked to welcome our today's genius mind, Sabine Erlinghagen, the CEO of Digital Grid at Siemens. Sabina has a passion for innovation and in her day to day business she and her great team accelerate and secure the energy transition towards a sustainable future. We love bold aspirations and awesome teams. So why not just start right into it? Sabina, thanks so much for taking some time off your busy schedule to be the guest in our podcast. How are you and where do we catch you today?
0: Thanks for that Uh, great introduction and welcome. I'm fine. I'm great. I mean, uh, spring is coming these days. So that's always the best time of the year, I guess. And I'm as everybody these days in my home office.
1: Yes, I guess so, right? 26 degree. I can't believe it. I don't know when we, you know, we actually, you know, launch uh, this episode, but 26 degrees straight after the, the winter. It feels always like, you know, butterflies popping up, right? Because you just throw away your, your anoraks and your, your sleeves and, and cuffs and whatsoever, right? So let's let's talk about data. It's Cute data, I guess we love data and, and fancy and flawed uh, data correlation. I've seen uh, most recently a stats that uh, there is a high correlation between you know eating Swiss chocolates and winning a Nobel Prize. So it has a high. So as usual, as we have it in in AI, right? A correlation may not indicate a causation. But uh, I guess you still have quite some affiliation with Swiss and Zurich, right? If you look at your Vita, what's that all about? And can you give us a quick tour, maybe sightseeing tour, you know, what was your past like? And you're now super exposed as CEO, was that always from the very beginning kind of aspirations that you had, Sabina?
0: You know, in my case, it's actually, I'm breaking the uh, the correlation. I, I don't really am a big fan of chocolate, um, but I'm also not winning a Nobel Prize
1: in my life, I guess. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Despite having lived for uh, quite a number of years now, um, 700 meters away from one of the famous uh, Swiss chocolate Factories, and uh, I could always get the smell um, of that on my balcony. So
1: <laughs> love it. <laughs> um,
0: no, Switzerland actually was a pretty um, decisive period in in my career because um, at the time, that's more than ten years back, I decided to leave Siemens and to discover the world around. And that, by coincidence, um, was also when I uh, moved to Switzerland. So leaving a, the big corporation, which um, was all my professional life before, and and really experiencing, I guess what what I what felt like more freedom—freedom freedom to act, freedom to shape—and first of all, doing that by by joining ETH and um, working as a freelancer, as a consultant and diving into a, a topic that I'm really passionate about, uh, which is the energy transition and uh, the energy networks. So that, that, that was really a decisive point in my career and showed me how much there is to shape and how much freedom you can have to shape things. And um, that ultimately also is what brought me to, to be a CEO, is, is that passion to, to change things, that passion to create things and um that's what i enjoy these days so i concluded my time in switzerland actually by coming back to siemens um after seven eight years um with startups with uh, in a university environment joining one of the largest demand response startups in the world building that business for uh, switzerland as a one woman show and i guess that's the, that's the humbleness um, also mm-hmm. that I learned there on, on, on really starting small and, and scaling things up and what it takes to get from one customers to 10, um, which is something that sometimes in a large organization like Siemens, we underappreciate.
2: Wonderful. What a journey. So Sabine, you already mentioned that um, you, you're working from home. And yeah, the reason is um, that we're facing quite a challenging time with the pandemic. And maybe mindfulness and digital detox has become more important than ever to recharge and reset. And how are you actually dealing with the current situation? And when was the last time uh, you had a digital detox moment?
0: It's actually some, something about self-care that, especially in home office, we all got to learn. I have two habits that stuck stay with me. One that is with me all my life. Um, I don't work on weekends. So weekends are really off. Our detox are going out uh, into nature and having as little time in front of a PC as possible. Um, so that puts my mind off, recharges my battery uh, quite substantially. And the other habit that I established during especially this pandemic uh, was one day a week, a two-hour lunch break. And what that does for me is that I can go out in daylight. So um, I get daylight, I'm uh, outside, I can do sports in that uh, two-hour break. And it's totally feasible to incorporate that in the in schedule once a week.
1: And that helped me a lot as well to to cope with the situation. Awesome. Uh, I guess, right, success is resilience divided by failures, right? <laughs> <laughs> and in, 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 in charging, you know, uh, resilience, uh, is this is important, setting priorities. I love that.
2: So cool um, and so important to really, like, take that time off and re- be conscious about the time and get, like, some, some sunlight So there's a lot of buzz around adaptive organizations and operational agility in the age of digitalization. But how does adaptive and agile in a large organization like Siemens really fit together? Why do large organizations need to be a bionic company in current times? And what needs to be done from the executive level to really support that transformation?
0: I guess... You said it already. It's, it's a need to be a bionic company, so to be reinventing yourself uh, constantly and adapting to your environment. And I guess many people who work in Siemens still have a, a history in, in the old Com days. So the old uh, days where uh, Siemens was supplying mobile phones, was supplying switch gear for communication networks. And so do I. So I still remember times 2003, it's not that long ago, that we were strategizing around fixed mobile convergence and the likes. And it's mind boggling how every one of us saw how quickly you can be out of business, how quickly you can be overtaken, how much you can underestimate the small competitor there or the company from China on the other side. So I guess that has become part of the DNA of Siemens, um, at least for those who have lived through that times. And for me, it, it was actually my upbringing. That's how I started my career to see that happen. And that's what I swore to myself never again. I I don't want to be the incumbent, complacent, uh, just being a little bit arrogant as well on um, underestimating others. So that's the first part of the answer. The second part is, what does executive leadership need to, to do? I guess it's being clearer than ever about the direction of change. It's not a little bit to the past and a little bit to the future. It's the future and you've got to be very, very clear in um, how you lead and how you communicate. Second thing, you've got to be decisive and surprising. So I, I think one thing that helped a lot was our work, new work policy is a very decisive step and it's a big step and it's surprising for people so it stands for the new Siemens and the more surprises we can show to people the more there is credibility so being clear um, and then being surprising and simple
1: yeah love that Love that, actually. Nice nice say from actually, the, you know, there is uncertainty under the bat of every CEO, right? And I have the feeling that maybe it's not only CEOs, but also employees. <laughs> but if we look then in a bit of, you know, in the current, I don't know, social media world, right? There's quite, quite some hype about, you know, things you have to be to be a successful leader, right? Bill Gates wants me to read somehow 50 books, right? Elon Musk wants me to only sleep five hours. You know, Cook wants me, you know, to get up at five o'clock in the morning, you know, Franklin said, like, you know, exercise and learn at least one day. Bezos says, like, always stay one and day one, right? Buffett says, like, cancel all meetings, don't do the things, right? So, Sabine, help me out here. You know, what what is it that a good leader from your perspective in the age of digitalization in AI makes and, and needs to constitute there?
0: I mean, who am I to judge on all those great <laughs> ones who oh, beyond doubt uh, have uh, proven success? So um, I guess for me, there are those kind of geniuses, if you want, who have their own personal recipes. I'm just not sure whether that's good advice for everybody uh, to uh, to repeat and to do the same. I guess in, the, in a world where it's no longer what you what you studied and what you like that that you can rely on something that you studied and that's still true and you're still the expert and the best expert gets promoted more than anything i believe the ability to bring together a great team with very complementary capabilities complementary change of thoughts or um, thought processes experiences personalities that for me really is is the most important ingredient. So to accept that by no chance you will be the best expert out there. For me, I think great leadership is connecting the dots, allowing and looking for diversity of thought and then bringing together that diverse team to do the necessary struggling, to, to do the necessary fighting, to do the necessary yeah, struggle for the best idea um, and then make sure we we move forward decisively but i'm i sleep more than 5 hours i don't read 50 books a year
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: well, <laughs>
2: You already mentioned that smart grid is somehow what you're doing, and the connection of sustainability and technology seems to be the guiding pole also within your PhD track, in which you did research on smart grid as a new innovation system. So, what is actually a smart grid, and what is a microgrid, and where is this new innovation arising from?
0: The interesting thing is a part of the grid was always smart, and that's the transmission grid. When we refer to smart grid, what we really mean most of the time is that everything, medium and low voltage grids, so everything that is getting closer to the households or closer to the consumers, the industrial consumers, the commercial consumers, that is the part that over decades has not been smart. It's just something where we assume the so-called copper plate and there's very little sensors, very little visibility. We just assume that there's a certain amount of consumption going on there um, and that's why on the top we we introduce that amount of electricity into the system And and that's just an assumption that no longer holds. Now, given that the medium and low voltage grid is... It's so far spread. It's not a few high transmission lines, but it's everywhere. Um, A lot of feeders, a lot of smaller lines. And trying to manage that and have a transparency like we did in the transmission grid, it's just not possible to do that with the same conventional means as production gets fed into those uh, voltage levels. And hence, you need to rethink the whole thing. And um, that's a mind-boggling, complex problem to solve, which I personally find extremely fascinating.
1: I love it. Speaking of technology then, right? Um, so uh, Siemens has said, you know, most recently this technology with purpose statement out there, right? As as one of the key themes, you know. Uh, what does that mean actually for you? Are we m- moving away from the traditional, you know, product mark- market fit and rather taking a bigger scope than, you know, what sometimes is referred to as the the product-planet fit? I love that
0: expression. Product-planet fit is exactly where we are going and where we need to go. So clear yes. I fundamentally believe that sustainability is no longer an option, not only because of society and our planet and all that good stuff, but it's no longer an option for, for companies. So if I, as an investor these days, invest in, in oil and gas, this is a pretty high risk bet. So I need to factor in a lot of risk to make that investment while investing in clean tech and investing in sustainable production, sustainable systems is of much lower risk. And if that's the case, then money will just show us the way it's where the investment goes it's where and it's a massive investments we're talking about really the big funds the big pension funds the big hedge funds making bets on that and hence if you in the end product market fit and product product planet fit become the same thing
1: so it's not so the the market will be the planet or whatever you mean like the market will enrich but because because of the yes, market will be it's, it's no itself. longer
0: different so if if we say market planet fit is an e-vehicle, for instance, or a future state of that electric vehicle, then it will be product market fit and will be product planet fit. I don't think the future will know a difference.
2: Yeah, exactly. Even like investors are more and more demanding a sustainable solution, more sustainable disclosure from company and um, that they take on more responsibility. But so you mentioned that sustainability is becoming kind of mainstream and is part of a like de-risking strategy. So generating profits through responsible action. But can you maybe elaborate a little bit more on that? Why will that be so crucial for the future? And what does that mean?
0: I already elaborate on the de-risking part. There's kind of the risk of that just not being supported anymore. There are so many subsidies still going into oil and gas, so if, if you would invest into that and uh, policymakers are taking out those subsidies, then it's just a very bad investment. So you, you won't have the return. You ha- still have that high risk of being dependent on those uh, subsidies. While at the same time, decentral energy resources, especially the renewable ones, get to uh, parity. So uh, you have like cost parity um, or get even cheaper then it's just a natural thing to do. And so there was a paradigm for many, many, many years that profitability and responsible conduct or sustainability are two opposites and mutually exclusive. What we see is actually quite the opposite now. It's financially smart, And has a higher return if you invest into sustainability and sustainable solutions, as opposed to non-sustainable solutions, which cost more.
1: Mm -hmm. Love that, actually. You mentioned already, right, a bit of the, you know, energy resources and the uh, distributed energy resources market, right? According to some kind of study, right, we, we this will significantly grow, obviously, right? 75% and 10% of global installed power generation, right, by 2030, super crazy, right? I guess that poses super challenges on a grid operating level, right? How do we tangle these kinds of complexity what what needs to be done there
0: i mean you're spot on i mean that is the number one concern and the number one challenge for grid operators these days we just conducted a a market studies with significant interviews around the world and it's regardless of where you go you go to india you go to the us you go to italy you go to the Nordics, it's everywhere the same. And it's not only the distributed energy resources as such, where one might think of solar or distributed wind or heat, combined heated power, but it's, it's the EV charging as well, which is even being introduced at a higher pace, and it has more impact on the grid. And uh, that complexity is really where grid operators all tell us that's the biggest challenge they're facing, and that, as I explained before, against the fact that we are totally blind on the those parts of the grid. So while on the high-voltage side, we know exactly what's happening. The sensors everywhere, we know how much is fed into that grid, we know how much is co- consumed from each of those lines. But then when you go to the medium and low-voltage grid, You don't know who is ingesting what into the grid. You don't know who is consuming what when it comes to electrical vehicle charging, because we just don't have sensors, we don't have meters, we don't have the data connected. So we're flying totally blind, and we have those by now massive things happening Two way flow of electricity, both uh, ways in the lines, which was one way before. And it's getting to levels where it's no longer neglectable. And um, that really is mind boggling.
2: And how could then maybe AI, as an example, in the field of digital grid contribute to that ongoing energy transition? Can you maybe share some use cases that you are in particular excited about? And where do you see the greatest potential? of AI and machine learning technologies to be applied in the future? Mm-hmm.
0: Great question. And um, obviously, if what what we see is that with conventional means, so putting just as many sensors as we had put on the high-voltage grid to put that across the low-voltage grid is just impossible. It's just uh, something that costs way too much money installing all that hardware. like getting the the lines so the feeders thick enough to have enough spare capacity to to cope for for any eventuality is also not not an option so what you got to do is you need to take AI and you need to take machine learning to understand grid congestions to understand what is happening where and also to enable a in the end, autonomous way of managing the grid there. So reducing shedding loads and steering those decentral assets. One thing that we've just done uh, recently is um, really taking the historic data out of our grid control systems and run machine learning on those. Basically, it's an anomaly detection case to understand um, which feeders are out of balance where do we see things happening where do we have over in in some phases um, of the grid so really direct action of maintenance teams of the simulation and, and the planning teams of um, how those grids should be planned and how they can be maintained um, in, in a smarter way so Tangible things happening at the moment. I think ultimately my the analogy that I love most is uh, the one of, of the car. I mean, we're going from assisted driving to autonomous driving. And um, likewise, I believe we go from assisted grid control or grid management on the medium and low voltage to a then at least semi-autonomous grid management and grid control on those uh, fields And that can only happen if you apply AI and machine learning to cope with the data and uh, to make better decisions than, than humans can do.
1: And I hope it doesn't take 20 years to, to get the scale of <laughs> autonomous driving level. No, but you, you talked already and touched already about, you know, data, right? And uh, I think it's, it's the value is generated whenever fusion is involved, like different data pools, uh, you know, and AI infused aspects are happening. What would it say, you know, what's what's the role of somehow a data strategy? It's super, super fuzzy for a lot of people out there, right? And a lot of companies still struggle, right? How to actually make value out of data, how to leverage the company data, and also how to, you know, how do we partner up maybe even, right? Do we need some kind of shared data economy and stuff like that? What's your view on that? That's a very interesting
0: question and a pretty tough one. I mean, typically when coming from more the IT world with my background, when I thought of data strategy in the beginning, it was always, okay, as long as we are not in the cloud, so as long as we don't have the data actually, then I mean, I I wasn't necessarily having the, the first reflex to think about a data strategy because we don't have the data of our customers. I mean, especially in the grid space, it, all that information about the grid model, the actual operations of the grid and where we have critical situations. I mean, this is a sometimes a question of national security. So what, what changed my mind was to at least ask our customers whether we can work together with their data and on their data to help them overcome some of the challenges um, that i just described before so first of all i thought data strategy yeah you got to do that when you have data right and so that was for me synonymous with the cloud but really you got to think of that much before because the learnings and the insights and the value that we can create based on data can also be if we don't have the data like a Facebook or a Google or somebody. But when we work with customers and there, I think, as Siemens, we are uniquely placed and, and have a quite a high trust level to work with the customer, with the data, apply our analytics on their data without necessarily having all the data with us in the first place. So that I think is, is a fundamental change in how I think about that. And that obviously requires a different type of conversation, a different type of policy, a different type of contracting, a different type of, uh, as you said, partnering um, with our customers.
2: Speaking of partnering and we are living like in a world which is like more connected than ever and there are ecosystems all around and the digital and AI space is no exception. So collaboration across boundaries or regions or among corporates is becoming increasingly important. But isn't it sometimes super tricky to identify and define what do you want to do or what you don't want to do? Can you maybe like share a bit on your view on the role of the ecosystem, maybe with a particular focus on partners in the a i o t space mm-hmm.
0: I mean first of all you're right, and your your question is pointing into an absolute crucial what I would call muscle memory that we still need to get better at, and if I look at what helped us was to define who we want to be. So do we want to be a custom development organization, or do we want to be a software house, or do we want to be a solution integrator? Um, so shaping your own identity and how you measure whether you're successful with that identity was a very decisive step to let go and accept that there are partners who can help you with the things that you choose not to be and not to do. And that's how we unlocked quite a bit of of that partnership game we said, no, this is clearly something that we don't want to be. Uh, We don't want to be a custom code development house as the business unit that I lead. We don't want to be a system integrator. We love partners who integrate for us. We love partners who do extensions based on our products and, and do the customization, but it's not something that we want to do. So that creating that own identity is the first thing where how you get an ecosystem going, because you can be very firm and very clear that there's something you do and there are other things that you don't do.
1: Yeah, that's so super, super tough. And it's, it's cr- greatly put. That is what, what I feel and hear quite on this uncertainty. What do we actually not do? Right. And it's, it's sometimes it's more easy to say what we all want to do and all the broad and bold aspirations. But the same thing. Hey, this is not what we are focusing on. Here's we, we partner up. This is super important. One of the important aspect is also, you know, obviously the strengths of industrial, you know, AI and industrial companies pushing, you know, innovation combining and connecting physical and digital world, right? And especially in infrastructure, I guess, right? And that means for a lot of cases, it's the IT OT thing. For other cases, it's the cloud and edgy, let's say, thing, right? And and I guess in your context, it's rather the challenge on you know how do we integrate these all these assets, battery storage, e cars, and stuff like that, right? While maintaining this physical stability, what's your view on that? Are you seeing that a lot of companies still are in 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 the first cloud first, or are they already edge first, or how how do you see that? I guess.
0: I would not see that in our industry, cloud first or edge first is necessarily a debate that is that strongly going on. Um, I guess it's IT and OT, and that conversion, which is which I see all around, and then it's edge and cloud. So I, I don't think we've had the pendulum swing so much towards cloud or edge because it's really that theme of stability that and grid reliability that is big and number one two three and four priority for a grid operator and then it's about how it and ot merge how for instance i talked about data before you have the live running scada system which processes obviously in real time all the absolutely vital parts of the grid and estimate the state estimation and all that good stuff and there we already have that connection between the field and the central intelligence, which SCADA for many years has been in many industries. Now, when you look at the higher complexity of the calculation and the actions that need to be taken, um, that SCADA piece needs to take into account more information to make better decisions given all the things that we just discussed around renewable energy and and the like, and distributed resources. Now, you need to add to that OT world processing capability, compute capability, machine learning out of the IT world, and that's cloud, to make better central decision-making. At the same time, if you try to bring all that complexity up to the central level, you will die, even with the most advanced machine learning capabilities um, of that complexity, because you might not be fast enough. So you need the intelligence decentrally as well. So for me, it's not an either or, the complexity is so big that um, it's definitely an end when it comes to cloud and edge.
2: Yeah, well put. So Sabina, you're not only a very inspirational leader, but also like super humble and you've been different places and pushed bold initiatives and projects. Are there maybe some lessons learned that you uh, like pick up uh, along your way that you would like to share with the audience here? I, gu- I guess what,
0: what I take as, as my inner strength or how I move about change is two things. The first thing is Dare. So it's really, I mean, entrepreneurship, be it in a large corporation or be it outside, is about daring and taking risks. So there's no such entrepreneur inside or outside a corporation who's not taking a personal risk. And yes, you can make a corporate career without taking a personal risk, or trying to avoid it at max. But that's boring and that's most of the time not moving the needle or not changing anything. So everybody wants to make a difference. It's about daring and it's about taking a personal risk, sticking your neck out and assuming accountability for something. And then the, the second thought for me is, especially if you're in a large corporation, I would say it's look more to the outside than to the inside because large corporations have a history of doing a lot of things really well and a lot of things you can be proud of. But if you want to drive change, you've got to look at the outside. You've got to talk to as many people that are not from your company as possible. you got to, that's customers, that's uh, people in startups wherever but but just get that inspiration and get that learning from the outside because ultimately you want to change the inside but you can't change the inside with the recipes that you find in there so number one dare and number two look more to the outside than to the inside
2: that's very valid advice and very good advice thanks for sharing that and Savina, I was really flying. Uh, We're already at the very end of our session. But before we finish, we want to play our final game with you. So authentic autocomplete. And um, so I will give you for the closing a couple of sentence starters and you will just finish. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's go.
0: <laughs>
2: Let's go. So Siemens is? Reinventing itself. I like that. Sustainability is?
0: Vital and urgent.
2: Beautiful. Innovation is.
0: I stick with Schumpeter, creative destruction.
2: (laughs) True. (laughs) The world should have more of.
0: Forgiveness and uh, appreciation of diverse thoughts.
2: Love it. I agree, yeah. And the last one is quite a tough one. So if I could invent a rule for everyone in the world to follow, it would be? Believe in good intent. Beautiful. Yeah,
1: that is what we all do. Thanks so much, Sabine, for, you know, for being you actually, being that open, being that humble, being that passionate in in sharing, actually. It was really nice and we highly appreciate your time, you know, that you carved out uh, in that. Thanks so much for joining us here.
0: Thank you for uh, great questions, thought provoking. Uh, certainly, I take some things at home from that one as well. And uh, was a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: And folks out there, stay tuned. There's I don't know what to come, but there will be, I guess, a bit of a thing to come. Stay bold, committed, and open minded, and we hear us at the next Siemens EALE podcast. Thanks. <music>